Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyperpartisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshen Kamel, and you're listening to Legal Ease. This episode is on COVID-19 and Native communities, and it will be introduced by my guest co-host today, ASU Law Professor Valina Beattie. Thank you, Amina. Uh, so I'm Felina Beatty. I am a law professor at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and I'm also the deputy director of the Academy for Justice. Uh, the Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at ASU Law, and it aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Uh, and we're delighted with the experts that we have on the call today. So on this podcast episode, we'll hear from leaders who are responding to the impact of the coronavirus in Native communities. We're fortunate to be joined by Navajo Nation Chief Prosecutor Jennifer Henry, Chief Prosecutor Elaine Breland for the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian Community, and Associate Judge Alfred Urbina of the Pascuyaki Tribal Court. Uh, and you'll be able to find their full biographies on LegalEasePodcast.com. Welcome to all of you. Uh, my first question is for Chief Prosecutor Breland. Uh, and the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community is one of the few in the nation that has a prison, I believe. Uh, so there's a Department of Corrections. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the prison is run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, and I was wondering if you've seen similar problems with that prison during COVID-19 as in the broader state of Arizona. The Salt River Department of Corrections is actually run as a tribal government department of the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community. So the director of that facility and the corrections officers who work there are actually all tribal employees of Salt River. When we first started hearing all the rumblings about COVID-19, we all began to work together to try to figure out what the best ways would be to ensure that we did not have this captive um, inmate population who would be exposed and who would be high risk. So what we did was figure out which inmates would be appropriate for either early release or release especially the inmates who were in on, on bond, try to figure out which of those would be appropriate for release. I can happily report that so far we've had no cases while we've, during this time, we've had no cases of COVID-19 reported in the Salt River Department of Corrections. Additionally, we communicated with our police department to try to discourage nonviolent arrests. So obviously we have this legal obligation to ensure that the statutes that are passed by council are enforced, but I think that we all have 
in addition to that, a moral and ethical obligation to keep the spread of COVID-19 down in the community in any ways that we can. And I think that keeping down the traffic into and out of the Department of Corrections is certainly an important part of that. And so we worked with, with the police department to try to ensure that the only arrests that are really taking place right now are violent offenders, offenders who pose a danger to the community. And so because of that, we have seen a decrease in arrests overall. So that has decreased the traffic into and out of the Department of Corrections. And um, as I said, it, it seems that what we've what we've done so far has worked because we haven't had any cases reported there at all yet. Thank you. And similarly, uh, Chief Prosecutor Henry, uh, how has the Navajo Nation addressed concerns about COVID-19 with their jails? Uh, Thank you. So we actually have seven detention facilities. We've got four in Arizona and three in New Mexico, two of which include juvenile um, and adult centers. And, um, you know, early on in March, when we first learned that that there were COVID positive cases, uh, we saw outright fear by our Department of Corrections because they were not equipped to do any testing yet. They had insufficient PPEs, uh, frankly, for daily, daily cleaning, let alone to be aware that this was happening. So we got together. I had a meeting with one of our associate justices on the Supreme Court with our director of public defender's office, uh, some folks from the office of the president very early on and said, you know, what are we going to do? And it, it honestly seemed like there was so much fear that they started discussing like blanket release. Um, we, we can't have any inmates. We can't have any new bookings. We, we just, we can't do it. Um, and that was really disturbing. I have to say, as as the prosecutor, I'm aware that there are people that are in custody who really need to be in custody for a reason. So we immediately started reviewing the rosters for each facility daily, my office. Uh, we always got the rosters, but I honestly, I would kind of briefly look at it to see who was new, what charges were being brought. But every morning, um, I start getting the rosters at about five o'clock in the morning. I forward them to the legal team, and um, we we initiated releases on a majority of people. People are being held pre-trial on bonds. Sometimes bonds they can't pay, um, or for situations that we felt we could make a more creative release uh, conditions uh, for. So we sat down and we filed numerous motions for release. We also released uh, as many people who were serving sentences as we could, even if they weren't yet eligible for probation or parole. We just requested temporary releases. The jail provided us lists of people with underlying medical conditions because they have to do the transport for um, appointments and they they weren't able to get inmates to the appointments. So we wanted those people out to the degree we could. And then we started reaching out to victims to make sure that they knew um, about these releases. And we continue to do that. There was an, an immediate push to get as many people out as we could initially. We continue to do that every day. And it's been it's been hard. Um, we get a lot of complaints from households saying, you know, you we we didn't want this person released, and um, that's been rough. There have been outbreaks in our jails. We've been discussing about whether we should establish one facility as being purposely to house people who are positive, but 
either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic because violent crime has increased, uh, not decreased. So we, we can't just continue to not have new bookings. Um, we have two departments of, we have two police departments in the Navajo Nation and they are doing minimal arrests. They're doing a lot of releases on personal recognizance, but we've got the violent offender problem um, for sure. And we're setting up alternate care sites um, to try to take care of some of those, but I, you know, we've reduced it to the point where we we actually are needing to figure out what to do. Thank you. And uh, Judge Urbina, uh, are you familiar with the incarceration conditions for defendants who appear before you in the Pascuyaki Tribal Court? Um, <clears throat> yes, I am. I'm, I'm familiar with the uh, the incarceration rates. Um, I used to be the chief prosecutor um, for a time as well. And so our system, we have a 23-bed facility on the reservation um, that we use for short-term detention. Uh, we also contract with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the, their Western Region office out of Phoenix. They contract with local facilities in Arizona, as well as the Southwest, for any, anybody who's going to be serving long-term sentences or will have a, a, a time where they're, they're going to be in custody um, before a trial. We, um, we have the majority of our folks are released pretrial. This, is, uh, this includes you know, low-level offenders as well as fel felony-level offenders. We have a pretrial release system uh, and a pretrial program that monitors people in the community on ankle monitors as well as um, you know checking in. So um, most folks can be released um, in all but the most violent cases back into the community. They're being monitored. The, our pretrial program has between probably close to 80 people right now who are released in the community. About 10% of our folks are serving are either serving sentences but are, are, or are being held pretrial on bonds. We do, um, the court has issued an administrative order to give people guidance on uh, the types of cases the court would be hearing going forward, reducing it really to emergency type cases, violent cases, violent warrants, and that has reduced the traffic through the court. Um, also the arrest by law enforcement on low-level traffic warrants, um, low-level crime that has occurred, they're being cited um, and released and cited for, you know, at least 45 days out so that we've got a cushion now where we're not having all that traffic come through. We've also, um, so, so that's kept our, our in-custody rates low. Um, the inmates have access to healthcare, food here at the local facility, they do health checks. Um, there hasn't been an outbreak within this this system. Uh, however, we're checking people as they come back into the court. So if they've been released or, or they've been held and they've been taken to a contracted facility and are coming back, we're, we're checking them and, and the those facilities are also checking them. The Bureau of Indian Affairs has, um, I think some of the contracted facilities have refused to take people. And so they've had to juggle exactly where someone's going to be held, whether it's in the state of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. 
Um, that makes things a little bit um, more difficult in terms of coordination, in terms of access to attorneys who need to speak to their clients um, prior to a court hearing. So if they're if they're coming back for their arraignment or any kind of pretrial um, hearing, then their attorney can speak to them uh, while they're on reservation. But the contracted system is cheaper, but it makes it a little more difficult in terms of due process and, and access to attorneys. Thank you, Judge Urbina. The next few questions will be focused on Navajo Nation. So Chief Prosecutor Henry, as Chief Prosecutor, what does your typical day look like and what are some challenges you've been faced with in your position? I'm not sure I can remember the last time I had a typical day. Being a prosecutor in general feels like being a plate spinner, you know, or a juggler, um, because we just take things as they come, because realistically, we're a reactionary office. You know, we don't initiate anything unless we get it from the police department or social services. So much of what we do and how our day goes on any given day depends on a lot of other people. Um, so as as acting chief prosecutor, I'm responsible for all the administrative things for my office, like payroll and HR and budgeting, both our general funds and our external grant funds. So those things are on set timelines. You know, every two weeks I do payroll um, and budget has its own season, uh, which seems perennial. But that's definitely become a challenge as our offices have all been closed. So in March, mid-March, I think it was the 16th, all of the executive branch offices were closed. So we've been closed. Everything's been closed except for essential activities. But of course, it takes several weeks for programs to decide what limited services they're going to provide. And, and to move from a system completely paper-based, we still do handwritten payroll in the Navajo Nation, as huge as we are. So we, it was actually a challenge to even create a spreadsheet that was electronic to submit to payroll because their doors are closed. So there have been a lot of administrative challenges, getting budget transfers done to get my folks paid every two weeks has been really interesting. And then in addition to my chief prosecutor role, I'm also the prosecuting attorney in one of my districts. So I also am responsible for all of the adult and juvenile justice matters in, in one of our judicial districts. So of course, with that comes regular court hearings, catching whatever police department sort of throws my way on a particular day, what children may get removed from the custody of family during this time from social services uh, starts very, very quick timelines for us. So it just depends on um, what happens on in any given hour of any given day. And, and the challenges the challenges are the same today as they were six months ago, but they're exacerbated because there are fewer people working, fewer people out in the field, fewer offices providing services at all. Travel is restricted. Probation, uh, defendants on probation are not being monitored in the field. Parents are not being monitored in the field. So those challenges exist. I, I also think that the sheer size of the Navajo Nation is always a challenge. And just to give you some idea, we have um, 
the land base slightly larger than West Virginia. So West Virginia, I was looking up, is 24,000 square miles. Navajo Nation is 25,000 square miles and change. And so it's really large and we span three states. So in addition, we've been dealing with various state counties being more or very much less supportive of these uh, COVID responses that Navajo Nation is being put up. We have jurisdictional issues. And then in addition, we work with our federal partners and it's been a challenge because the U.S. attorneys are working from home. The FBI is limited in their scope of Indian country uh, response. So it's it's really highlighted for me, these problems that we've known we've had for years have been exacerbated and the silver lining's gotta be out of all of this that we can do better because these problems will not go away when COVID goes away for us. So it's, it's been very interesting. <laughs> uh, a follow-up question to that is, uh, can you tell us more about your work, not just as chief prosecutor or a prosecutor in general, but specifically for Navajo Nation, what that entails or you know, things that listeners ought to know that they might not know? So as I said before, Navajo Nation is very large and, we, and very complicated. It's complicated bureaucratically because of its size. We have, we have two police departments. We have two departments of social services. We have a very large and robust judicial system and of course, we're a three-branch government, so we the judicial branch is separate and, and independent. And we've got 11 judicial districts, each of which has a district court and a family court, and that spans three states. So we have a court in Utah. And so that means what it means for a program like the prosecutors is that we have to try to cover everywhere. So we've got 10 offices throughout a land base the size of West Virginia. And I've only got um, 16, my, my legal team is 16 people, three of whom are studying for the bar so they can't appear in court. So there are just a few of us and many of our offices, our biggest offices have one of us. There's one prosecutor and we do kids cases and we do adult cases. So it's easy to feel really isolated and alone. So one of the things that that we do that I I thing people probably don't know is we really keep in touch a lot together to to kick around ideas and to make sure that we understand when as a program we need to be acting uniformly but likewise each of our districts is really unique and it has unique problems it has unique flavors um people even speak uh i don't know that it would really be a dialect but there are different words and speech patterns in the Navajo language used throughout different regions of our nation. So um, it's really fragile as a chief prosecutor that we not be so uniform that we don't serve the unique needs of each of our communities. So against all of this, we have a really complicated and unique, I think, criminal code and codes in general but all of it is against the backdrop of fundamental law, right? Dinebibehazani, we say, um, which is this idea of an unwritten law handed down by the holy people. But it's tangled with written statutes that look a lot like they might have come out of Arizona or New Mexico. And, and so I think what people may not know is just 
how complicated our system is um, and, and how under-resourced my office is and all of our partners, our police department is woefully understaffed. Um, it has been always, and it most certainly is now because it's been um, called upon to do everything from escorting uh, trucks, delivering food, to protecting the community in the way it's always done, to enforcing curfew, to um, trying to monitor people who have been ordered to self-isolate at home. So as they become stretched more and more thin, we become stretched more and more thin. Um, so, so I think those kinds of complexities in the Navajo Nation are, are, I think, not talked about enough. And then we have, of course, our state and federal partners that we work with because we have a lot of concurrent jurisdiction with the federal system. So for major crimes and whatnot, we work really closely with, with our federal partners and we're trying to increase those relationships you know, it, it, that have not always been good. <laughs> so I think those are some of the things that, that I think our office does that are not, all, are not always so obvious. Uh, so 10 public health mandates have issued in the Navajo Nation that have the force of law. Uh, so during the COVID-19 pandemic, what tools do the prosecutors and the police have uh, within the Navajo Nation? Yes, so we're up to public health emergency order 11. It was issued about 20 minutes ago. Oh, wow. Um, and so, you know, the, the majority of the orders have instituted either, we, we have had since uh, late March, a daily 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew. And subsequent to that, there were a series of 57 our weekend curfews, so it's Friday night to Monday morning. Um, and those curfews have increased in their strictness, if you will. Last weekend was the first time that the curfew was called a lockdown. And the public health emergency order that just issued was, is also, it's gonna mirror last weekend's, which is a lockdown, meaning essential businesses can no longer remain open. Um, healthcare businesses, of course, remain open, but gas stations and stores were, were previously open and they are now closed. So as you can imagine, we, we have a, a mandatory mask wearing in public. And we also have, we have early voting started in New Mexico last Saturday. So we are trying to accommodate with the public health orders, like allowing people to vote, allowing people to tend to their livestock. So the reason I say this is there are, there are these curfew orders and lockdown orders, but sufficient exceptions to make them complicated. <laughs> so we really have two tools uh, to, at our disposal, both as prosecutors and police. So one is criminal and one is civil. In terms of criminal, we have a criminal offense called criminal nuisance. And what the definition of the offense or the elements of the offense is when one knowingly or recklessly creates or maintains a condition which endangers the safety or health of others. So I cannot be criminally nuisant with respect to myself, but if I potentially am positive for COVID or I'm symptomatic or I'm doing something that violates what our Department of Health has mandated is important to prohibit to decrease the spread of COVID, then I am potentially creating a condition that endangered someone else. 
So we're approaching it that way. And that's one, that's our criminal tool. Our two police departments are handling these differently. So of course, we're not involved. Prosecutors are not involved early on with that. We don't charge people without a police report. So Navajo Police Department are issuing citations. They are in effect on a citation form like you might receive if you um, speed. (laughs) And at the bottom, they have a return date. So they're not arresting people for this. They are issuing citations and people are expected to return. They're being released on their personal recognizance um, to for a date in the future. Rama Navajo PD, which is our, our second police department, are not issuing the citations, but rather issuing uh, forms for personal recognizance with the return date, charging people with the criminal nuisance. And some of those dates are coming up. We don't know yet as a prosecutor team really what's going to happen with those right because our courts are closed (laughs) and we have made a deal with the courts to only file complaints that are accompanied by motions to deny bail which mean only the people who are arrested and we really seek to keep them in custody so these are not those cases so they're all coming up in the future and i think there will be some um problems I anticipate problems prosecuting criminal nuisance um, for curfew violations, for sure. The second tool we have is um, civil, and we have a Civil Health Commitment Act in the Navajo Nation, which, you know, I can talk a little bit about um, later, but it's really meant for mental health, to address mental health issues and to try to get people treatment, um, involuntary treatment or involuntary assessment. And that's another tool that we are uh, really hoping to not have to use, but but it may be one of the tools in our arsenal here. Could you explain to um, us and our listeners a bit about the Navajo Health Commitment Act? Sure. So our Health Civil Commitment Act was initially passed in 2006, which frankly makes that kind of new here. <laughs> And it replaced an old 1960s tuberculosis and other contagious diseases act. It replaced that in its entirety. So the purpose of the Civil Commitment Act is to balance the interests of individuals with that of the community. When someone is suffering from a physical or mental illness or disorder that if untreated results in serious harm to either the afflicted person or the community or both. So that's its purpose. And it sets out kind of a two-pronged approach because it really is intended to address mental health. So the first prong of, of the act allows prosecutors or anyone, family members, any employee of the Navajo Nation, to apply to have someone evaluated. And so you can see how that is mental health driven but potentially usable to compel testing for COVID. The second prong is if you have someone evaluated and the evaluation under the statute is pretty strict in the details it requires, and then it has to be concurred to by a second um, healthcare provider. Once you get an evaluation or you have an evaluation, say you have a test that's positive, I'm thinking, uh, you can then petition the court for court-ordered treatment. So the treatment needs to be, the treatment would be called a health commitment order, and it has to be in the least restrictive 
environment, the least restrictive treatment. And of course, we um, include traditional native healing methods to the extent that that's advisable or necessary. So that's our health commitment statute, and I haven't used it yet. We have been talking about using this act um, almost every day in our daily sort of staffings we have together. And it's becoming more and more apparent that we have people who are positive, who refuse to go home, refuse to stay home, are being kicked out of their home by, by a household member, and they're wandering the streets or they're going to another family member's house. And, and I, I think it's clear that community spread is occurring that way here. Um, we, as of yesterday, have 4,071 positive cases in the Navajo Nation. Um, so per capita, we are now the third, the, 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 the area, we're not a state, but we're the third hardest hit by this. And we have not yet reached our peak, I hear. So it's becoming increasingly clear to us that we need to potentially use this statute. What really scares me about this statute is that it's I'm really scared about compelling people to get tested. And I'm really scared about compelling people to stay somewhere they don't want to be. And I'm concerned about how we're going to police that. Because the least restrictive environment in my head is home. But even if I have a household that that's a good consideration for, because the household members are likely positive and or should be isolating if they've been with this positive household member, they won't, what if they don't stay home, right? Then I have to have police out running after people. We don't have non-medical alternative, alternate care sites yet. We've got two medical alternate care sites. When I usually file a Health Commitment Act case for someone who has really a serious mental illness, they get appointed counsel. We take our time. We think through things. We're very careful about doing it. And our public defender's office are, is closed. So we could appoint pro bono counsel, but they're not from here. And I worry about the effectiveness of our pro bono counsel. I worry that courts will say, well, let's just do it quick, right? We've got to do it. Let's just do it. So I'm really concerned. Um, and, and not all my prosecutors share my concern. There, there are definitely voices that are like, we got to do this. We got to do it like yesterday. But I, I feel somewhat confident that we've been able to avoid using it because we don't have the sites to confine people to yet. As soon as we start opening up these hotels that I keep hearing, we're going to manage um, in the Navajo Nation for either asymptomatic or people who don't need like critical medical care. I think we're going to be faced with doing it. I think that's probably going to be in the next week. And um, we'll see how that goes. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing all your expertise and insights and the current situation in the Navajo Nation. Uh, I wanted to look more broadly at the role of prosecutors and judges and uh, ask all of you um, for the communities that each of you serve, whether defendants have counsel, and if not, how does that impact your role, uh, both in the criminal justice system and right now with um, COVID-19? And I know uh, Prosecutor Henry said that, um, uh, that it may be difficult to get 
defense counsel right now because the public defender's office is shut down too. Um, so I wonder if each of you could answer that uh, and perhaps we'll start with Prosecutor Henry. Sure. Uh, so we do have a Navajo public defender's office. It is just as under-resourced as, as my office is. And we like to argue about who has more cases. And I tell them mathematically, the public defenders cannot have more cases than us because they only represent a subset of who we have. But OK, like peace for now. Their office is closed, as are we. Um, but I, I don't know the extent that they're telecommuting. Um, I've had some limited contact with the public defender in my district, um, but he has told me he doesn't have access to his court, like his case files or his client files. Likewise, our courts are closed and I have not had a case with a public defender since March. So our public defender's offices, because they're under-resourced, frequently withdraw from representation when they are appointed for lack of resources which means that we, um, our courts will appoint pro bono counsel. We've got a big, a pretty big bar association and we all are required to do pro bono appointments. When I was in private practice and I was winding up my practice, I had like 12 pro bono appointments. Um, and my partner at the time was like, no wonder we're not making money. <laughs> like we, we overtax our pro bono system. And the, the, the reason I raise it is people who, are in private practice for the most part, don't do criminal defense work. And so you're, you're having people represented for really serious crime by civil litigators or you know, people who do administrative law. So the vast majority of our defendants are unrepresented. And for me, and something we talk a lot about internally with my folks is that we do a bit of double duty and we, we have to have the integrity to know that we're, we serve as public defenders as well. And I say that, I say that with ease because my view of a public defender is that they ensure the prosecution is fair and that it's legal and that their clients due process rights are upheld. And I hope it's not arrogant to think we can ensure those things as well if we're careful and we're cautious. So we talk a lot about ensuring that we're communicating everything to the court and to the defendant in a way that's not confusing and that that's really our job. And we have to be cognizant that we could so easily steamroll over a defendant or bully or coerce a defendant into making a plea um, so we, we always are really, really careful not to do that. And we've had to unwind pleas. Like, you know, defendants have entered pleas at arraignment that we weren't, we weren't at. The nomination wasn't at. And when we realized sometimes at sentencing, we've had to actually work to completely unwind a plea and tell the judge, like, you know, I, I, I get that you accepted this guilty plea, but it's, it's inappropriate. I don't think he understood the rights. We got to unwind it. Let's do this the right way. So my team, I'm really proud of my team at how willing they are to do the double duty and um, to making sure that everything we do is honest and with integrity and that you're really watching a defendant and you know full well. I mean, anyone who says, oh, I thought he understood that, it's pretty obvious when people are confused or don't understand. So we just have to be cognizant of that. 
Um, Judge Urbina, with the Pescuyaki Tribal Court, um, do do many of the defendants who come into your court have counsel? Yes, um, for us, probably 99.9% of the folks that come through the court, both um, juveniles and adults, are represented by counsel. They are represented by counsel if they face a day in jail. So if they face no jail time, they have the right to counsel at their own expense. Um, generally, the vast majority of them qualify for counsel uh, financially. And so we, we um, have a pretty robust public defender's office um, with experienced public defenders st staffing that office. Um, these public defenders have worked in state systems. Um, they're very aggressive, they're very good. We also have a contracted um, team of defense counsel for conflicts. So they operate out of the city of Tucson and they fill in when there's conflicts. So um, I, I would say since I've been on the bench, I maybe had one person who didn't qualify financially. Um, and that's only because she lived by herself and she worked at, um, she worked at McDonald's. And she didn't have enough to hire an attorney, so the court made an exception and appointed one anyway, even though she didn't qualify financially because she, she wasn't going to be able to afford one anyway. Um, so, so the system is robust. Um, it, for us at the court, um, whether the prosecutor or the bench, you know, there's, there's the explanation, there's, there's things that happen at, at various stages, um, but it's all very... Um, you know, we, 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 it's, um, you know, all the due process you can, you can think of in a state court. It's probably even more robust in the tribal court because the Indian Civil Rights Act re requires, um, if you're going to, if someone's going to be facing jail over a year, appointment. So they've had to, they have to have at least facing a, a felony type sentence uh, for actual appointment. At the Bosquiaki tribe, it's one day in jail. So, so they have, um, you know, they have access, probably better access to, to court-appointed counsel than they would maybe in a municipality or a county in Arizona. Uh, so for us, it's just making sure that those public defenders come in. Um, the conflict attorneys do a very good job and everybody's working either remotely, telephonically, or through uh, video conferencing. The whole court system has divided into teams so that we we have a continuity of operations that will continue if if a team gets sick or, or if we're exposed so each office the public defender's office prosecutor's office and the tribal court is is split up into teams team a team b team c each team is responsible for different days of the week and each team uses different courtrooms different bathrooms um, we're segregated the, the courthouse is closed. There's hand washing stations. Everybody's using PPE from the defendant to the um, public defender. There's social distancing. We make special um, considerations for them to, to speak to their client. We'll take a recess to ensure that they get a chance to talk to them if they're not able to be sitting right next to them so that they can prepare for hearings. So it, we're probably doing a little bit more than, than other systems in terms of helping to keep people safe and healthy. And we're hearing that from our conflict counsel who 
who work in other systems. So they're basically tell, telling us, hey, we'd rather work here than at the federal court because they're not doing X or at the state court because they're not doing Y. So um, it, it's, it's, um, it is fairly robust, but, it, but however, the majority of uh, public defender systems in Indian country, they don't receive any kind of um, support. And, and generally there's not a federal um, process for funding public defender systems in Indian country. So while the prosecutor's office gets paid through a BIA contract and the court gets contracted for these services, um, a lot of times there's funding that's lagging for public defender services. That's supposed to change with, with some legislation that's proposed, um, but, it, but it's not really something that um, has been implemented just yet. Uh, and Prosecutor um, Breland, do, um, do defendants for the Salt River Indian community generally have counsel? And again, how is that impacted by um, the coronavirus? The Salt River uh, Defense Advocates Office is our version of the Public Defender's Office. They employ both tribal advocates and attorneys and case assignments are made based on essentially the neighbor, the nature of the case. So if it's a TLO-8 type of case where uh, the defendant is charged either with a felony offense or charged with multiple offenses that could result in incarceration over a year, then obviously an attorney is assigned. And um, otherwise, maybe a, maybe a tribal advocate will be assigned or, or it could still be an attorney. But either way, Every defendant in Salt River is appointed representation, either an advocate or an attorney, at their initial appearance. The Defense Advocates Office also handles appointments and contracts for conflict attorneys when that's necessary. They have a pool that they work with um, so that conflict attorneys are assigned. So in Salt River, it is exceedingly rare that we have unrepresented defendants only because a person would basically have to affirmatively reject any kind of representation because it's essentially automatically appointed at their IA or if they haven't been arrested at their arraignment. Um, there is no indigency requirement. No one asks any questions about income or ability to afford. It's just universal. Everyone gets representation. With regard to how COVID-19 has affected that, just like our office, the Defense Advocates Office is telecommuting we are all working from home. We are all using our laptops and our case management systems to work our cases. The court is operating on an emergency hearing only basis, like most courts in most jurisdictions. So hearings are being handled telephonically. I don't want to speak too much about the internal workings of their office because obviously I'm, I'm not in charge there and I don't work there. So I don't know obviously as much about their office as I know about what ours is doing. But in communicating with them, I know that they are um, meeting with their clients who are incarcerated, both in person and telephonically, the Department of Corrections is doing a good job of setting up legal calls and making those very available because, you know, obviously you have to talk longer and ask more questions when you're meeting with someone over the phone because it's not as conducive to explaining things like plea offers or um, release conditions. And so they are doing, a, both of those departments are doing a good job of facilitating legal calls, facilitating multiple calls, multiple visits when they're needed 
to ensure that um, the people who are incarcerated and who have hearings coming up understand what their rights are and understand what's going on in their cases. We're still in discussions about what's going to happen once we begin to phase in um, normal court operations. So we, we don't know that yet, but, you know, for, for us, for our office and for defense, we're trying to be as much as possible business as usual with, of course, the barriers that we're working from home, we're telecommuting, um, we're calling in for court instead of going in, you know, like we normally would. But um, we're trying very hard to make sure that we, we put out the same level of care and the same level of practice that, that we always would just from home instead of from our seats in the courtroom. Thank you for that. And this is just a general question for chief prosecutors, and this includes you, Judge Urbina, because you were also a chief prosecutor. What does it mean to be a prosecutor, and what do you think people ought to know about your work? Now, I know Chief Prosecutor Henry already beautifully spoke about this, but feel free to, to chime in again. We have a mission statement that my office put together a couple of years ago, and I wanted to tell you what it was because it really does... Uh, we, we worked on it all together, and it, it does encapsulate what it means to all of us to be a prosecutor. So it, it reads that the mission of the Navajo Nation Office of the Prosecutor is to, to, to do justice. We recognize the power given to us by the people of the Navajo Nation, knowing that as Natani, we exercise our duties with fairness, integrity, and humility. We strive to do our work in a way that promotes Keh and Hojon to ensure the health, safety, and welfare of all of the citizens of the Navajo Nation. And so what I would say is that the work is hard. Uh, this is by far the hardest job I've ever had. It's also the most rewarding. And so as prosecutors in small communities, while we complain about we're under-resourced, we wish there were more of us, you know, we really get to know our defendants, their families, the victims, the witnesses, our partners. And so often a defendant today is a victim tomorrow. And a victim yesterday is a defendant tomorrow or last week. And so to me, what being a prosecutor means is being a part of the community and treating everyone in my community like my own family. You know, I can can have a desperately nasty disagreement with a family member and and either resolve that or not resolve it but they're still my family member and that's really the way that for me what a prosecutor means is is really taking stock of the individual and knowing that we we use words like defendants and criminals and and victims but those are all fluid and they're kind of silly words in a way because we're all just people kind of doing the best we can and um, so for me, being a prosecutor really does mean just being a part of the community and trusting my gut and doing what, what feels right, um, talking to the most number of people, whether it's the victims, families. Um, and, and I don't know another job that you can do potentially as much good and potentially as much harm as being a prosecutor. For me, it's... it's um it's being a problem solver. It's um, understanding your community. It's working with the community. It's it's understanding um, your role within the a justice system. But it's also knowing that um, the decisions you're making um, day to day uh, will impact your community going forward. And so there's also 
the ability to to um, you might have some some time to actually look at um, some underlying issues to to connect dots or make um, assumptions that you can research. For example, a lot of our criminal cases might be associated with our foster cases. A lot of our drug cases and violent cases are coming up for certain reasons. And if you can if you can start to unpack that, you can actually start to solve or help solve social problems in a community. And you can actually see progress over time if you're doing it long enough because you're talking to the executive branch of government, um, the chairperson and, and the council. You're also working with the courts. Um, you're working with the federal government uh, for federal prosecutions. You're working with the public defender uh, for for different um, for for their input, um, and you're working closely with the community, and that's important. That's important in a small in a small place or in a village for for that to happen. And so, for me, it's rewarding because you can see over time uh, the impact you make. I see the people I used to prosecute. They're working at the casino. They're they're working in housing. Um, you know, we're working with people who are changing or developing. We're, we're working through social issues that have been problems since the 1970s or 60s. And we have the ability to actually intercede um, and help the community grow, you know, so that people feel safe and their children feel safe on the streets. And so you can absolutely see that over time. You can see that in a number of sexual assault cases, child abuse cases. Um, you can track and monitor this over time. And you know and you can tell people that your community is safer. Um, and, and people are, are, they have a better quality of life. Um, and those are things that, that a lot of people in a lot of different places they take for granted. Um, and then you're able to unpack um, the cases um, and, and move them into alternatives, heal into wellness and start to address um, the, the, the underlying social issues like alcoholism or, or drug abuse. Those are, those are really things that, that once you see a person get their children back in a foster case or, or get their driver's license or, or gainfully employed, those are things that, that are, are meaningful and, and, and have impact over decades. Um, it doesn't have to be incarceration for, for years to make your community safe. And so as a prosecutor, you're able to do a lot of those things. I was raised in a very small town in Alabama where my dad was a police officer the whole time I was growing up. He only recently retired. So while I'm not a tribal member and while I'm not Native American, I, I do understand small towns and I love them. And I think that that's why in the great big city of Phoenix, I gravitated much more toward practice in Salt River. And I think that's why I've stayed there for almost 13 years, um, because in a small town, in a small community, you can see change and you can see the effects of your work, both good and bad. And the times when maybe I've I've made the wrong decision or not the best decision. I, I, I've been taught by 
um, seeing the effects of that play out in the community. On a macro level, I think that our role, as the other prosecutors have said, is to ensure that justice is done. We should ensure that the statutes that are passed by tribal council are enforced. We should work to make the community safer. We should work to give crime victims a voice, um, but also do our best to practice restorative justice for the people who were charged with and convicted of, of crimes. Um, we need to be good stewards of the funds that tribal council gives to us, and we need to run our offices in ways that are efficient and innovative. But on a micro level, and Chief Prosecutor Henry alluded to this earlier, our roles change daily, and sometimes they change hourly. On any given day, there, there are times when I feel like a social worker or times that I feel like a victim advocate or a teacher Sometimes I'm a grant project manager because our office has three grants right now and just applied for a fourth. During budget season, I have to do some basic accounting and I have to do some public speaking because during non-COVID times, we present our budget to tribal council and answer any questions that they have. So the best part about being a prosecutor is that no two days are the same. You never know what to expect. But at the end of the day, we have this great responsibility entrusted with us for caring for the safety of the people in the community and caring for the liberty of people who were charged with committing crimes here. So we always remember that we affect people's lives, that people aren't case files, people aren't just numbers on a page, they are people, they are somebody's somebody. And so we strive to make our effects positive in the long term, even when they have to be uncomfortable in the short term, and sometimes they do because sometimes probation or incarceration are appropriate. So even when it has to be uncomfortable in the long term, we strive to make our net effect on the community and its people positive. And, and Amina, I'll just add one more thing to this conversation about um, the role of the prosecutor. The other the other thing is is I talked about the social aspects, but also the some political aspects and and the impact to the community long term is that there's collateral consequences. Um, tribes are now sharing um, convictions now um, with the state and across the country. So a tribal court conviction for marijuana could have collateral consequences in the state of Arizona. Um, these these convictions are also being used to enhance sentencing, to, to look at um, bond considerations, um, federal sentencing. So, so those are things that um, steadily over time will impact your community in terms of employment opportunities, in, in terms of education. You, you um, politically, they, they might not be able to vote. So that those implications are something we don't think about as prosecutors, but What's happening over time will um, are directly tied to these cases. So it's something the system should be thinking about when we prosecute or when we when we um, look at alternatives, um, the collateral consequences that are now being uh, applied across the country um, from Indian country uh, jurisdictions. If I could just tack on to that for one second. Yes, please go ahead. I love that this is sparking a discussion amongst the three of you. Judge Urbina reminded me um, of one of the lessons that I've learned, and I think it's only because I work in it, I've been able to work in a tribal community for most of my career. You learn much more about the collateral consequences in this environment because 
just by nature of the tribe, you work more closely with other departments. For instance, um, our office not only handles juvenile and adult criminal matters, we also handle juvenile dependency, child welfare cases. So if I have a mom who's been charged with child abuse, for instance, um, when we discuss that case at our MDT, I also then perhaps learn that if I convict her of this crime, not only is she going to go to jail, but she also she's also going to lose her home, which means that her children are going to lose their home, which means that her children are then going to be removed from her. And maybe that's appropriate and maybe it's not, but the nature of the work that we do requires me to consider that. Whereas if I practiced in a larger, different jurisdiction, I may not have to. So we, we are forced to confront the very real, sometimes catastrophic results of what we do and the power that we have and the harm that we can do just by insisting on a conviction or just by forcing a case to trial. So the, the good part of that, though, is that we can make those decisions proactively and not just realize them at the end, right? We can plan, we can figure out ways um, to be creative, to address problems that we see, to get counseling services in place. And, you know, sometimes the conviction is appropriate and then we have to deal with the housing situation at the other side, but we know going into it and we feel um, the emotional impact of, of what we're doing rather than it being anonymous and uh, I think that that's important. I think that when you are able to have the effect on someone's lives that prosecutors do, you should be informed going in of what you're really doing, then doing your best to, to be able to help the person get through it. I just wanted to point out that in, in tribal communities, we really do have the gift of, of working cases much more holistically, much more interpersonally than a lot of jurisdictions do. And so when it's appropriate, we can work them in a way that is less harmful to the family. And tribal communities really, I think, do such a good job of emphasizing the family unit, wanting to preserve families, wanting to preserve family relationships whenever possible. And so, of course, we are then charged with doing that as well. And it's a very different kind of education than what we get in law school, but I think it's so much more important. And that is the gift that tribal communities give to us as practitioners. Well, thank you, the three of you. That was so beautifully said. And I'm not sure, at least I'm not sure I completely had an understanding before this about that gift that you were talking about in working specifically with tribal communities and how that prosecutor work morphs into something, seems like something very beautiful and very different than what most people understand what a prosecutor does. So thank you for illustrating that. And this kind of leads beautifully to our next question. Chief Prosecutors, could you please describe for our listeners what your litigation team does? And I know Prosecutor uh, Henry already touched on this, but again, we welcome you to jump in and expand on it. Sure. So my litigation team is 16 people. Um, we are all working full-time from home. We have been since the beginning of, of the office closures. We kind of cannibalized our offices. Um, we badly cannibalized our offices of all office equipment and set up at home. We have our, our support staff, likewise, uh, took, took equipment home. And 
you know, our, what we're doing is is a lot of what we've always done. We're reviewing all the jail rosters daily to determine whether anyone we should either seek release or seek um, a denial of bail or some sort of opposition to release. So we, I think we tend to do that first thing in the morning. We are constantly reviewing these curfew violations, these citations that come in. We need to be making determination what needs to be filed now, what, what's critical, and what can wait, right? Because we, we want to create the, I want to say perception of enforcement, and that seems so much more negative than, than I mean, but it's important that the curfews be enforced without doing harm. So we, we have to make these determinations of which should be filed right away, um, sometimes to make a, a point to the community that you, you, if you will not voluntarily stay home, we will enforce these against you as an individual. The Chief Justice issued an administrative order for the courts identifying what kinds of hearings are considered critical and that have to be held, but every district judge has sort of interpreted that in their own way. So my prosecutors are also faced with very different um, court schedules, what hearings are going forward, what hearings have been continued for months and months and months, and what to do about that. When do we seek, uh, we've received continuances that we don't agree with. We, we want them disposed of sooner. So how, how far can we push our judges to have hearings that they maybe clearly don't want to have right away, um, and as the weeks go on, we're learning our ability to push the system to be better, uh, for, for judges to bend what was, you know, maybe not critical a month ago is maybe now critical. So one of the things that's really changed is we are meeting, we were meeting daily. We, we have a Skype calls daily and then we, we entered into major fatigue syndrome just of each other. So we now are like meeting every other day. But, you know, it's important because we are so far apart. We've never seen much of each other. Uh, but now we we tell each other jokes. We, you know, are meeting like barking dogs and screaming kids and, and husbands to come in the room behind our prosecutors and, and wives. So we share resources. We, we've been putting individual problems and cases that we have on the table. And because we have fewer court hearings uh, these days, we've really kind of coalesced. And I think have come to trust each other in a way that we weren't before. We're also, you know, our hair is not brushed and half of us don't brush our teeth every day and we don't care. You know, I'm, we appear in court in our pajamas and it's fine. And in many ways, really been a team building experience for us. And we've always been a pretty creative bunch, kind of out of self-preservation, I think. But now I feel like other programs have become creative too because they, they're compelled to do it. We've got to figure out We've had bench trials by phone. You know, how do we exchange discovery and um, exhibits with the public defender, with defendants, with the courts by phone? Like, what does that begin to look like? So our, our courts are closed to the public. It has been really interesting. And a couple days ago, what did you say? Tuesday. So last week, we, we were kicking around again this idea of mental health in the Navajo Nation. We have so many... Um, you know, we have alcohol use leads, often leads to drug use, leads to kids being removed. And we, we were struggling with understanding the Navajo concept of mental health and com competence and um, incarceration. And so we, 
we agreed as a group, we're going to reach out to the Diné Medicine Men's Association. There are, are um, well, there are medicine men and, and do something that we, we've never done. We're going to say, can we come to you as kids and sit on the ground and we need to learn from you? Because here you have a bunch of lawyers trying to implement things that we understand from the legal standpoint, but we don't understand maybe from, from the Navajo standpoint. And um, there are only two of us who are not Navajo in, in my, my team, but everyone is really diverse and, and different backgrounds. So I guess one of the things that our new daily routine of talking with each other has led us to do is to reach out for help. And I think ultimately, um, if the Medicine Men's Association will have us, we're going to be better for it. And, and I hope that as we get to whatever the new normal is going to look like, we can continue to do some of these things. I don't know where we'll find the time, but um, we're excited about, about seeing what the medicine men have to tell us with what do we do with these competence and mental health and these um, ideas that are very Western. Like, what do we do to ensure that we're um, pursuing justice from the Navajo standpoint? So those are the things we're doing every day. <laughs> Thank you for that. And also, thank you for the visual of the pajamas in court. Totally a 2020 mood. No, I love it. Um, (laughs) Even my own meetings, all of the work meetings, everyone's in pajamas and they're comfortable. It's become the state of affairs. So I do relate to that. Chief Prosecutor Breland, please feel free to answer the question as well. Sure. So our office operates essentially in two teams. The first team um, is our our criminal prosecution team, they handle all of the adult and juvenile, um, adult criminal and juvenile delinquency matters. Our daily operations sound, I think, pretty similar to, to Chief Prosecutor Henry's. Every morning, the Department of Corrections sends us a list of people who were booked the night before, and we take a look at those cases. Sometimes people are arrested on warrants, in which case we don't really have to do very much, except maybe notify some victims and, and let them know what's going on. Um, but But for people who are arrested on new charges, we get those reviewed as quickly as we can. We have 72 hours to file a complaint, but functionally, we really prefer to get it done quicker because if we aren't going to file, that means people get released more quickly. So we review, we review those police reports. We talk to victims if there are any. We make our charging decisions. Um, Salt River is holding arraignments on Mondays and Fridays. So for the prosecutors who are assigned coverage on those days, they handle those hearings telephonically. We are not having any hearings for anyone that is not in custody. So Um, If someone goes to initial appearance and they end up getting released on a bond or getting released OR, the court is not setting their hearings. The court is um, just going to set those once we resume to normal operations. So we have not had very many arraignments set. We have not had very many hearings of any kind set, but when they are set, we handle them telephonically. So we we all call in and you can imagine the telephonic court is awkward and it's weird and um, everyone feels that, but you know, it, everyone's weird together. Everyone's awkward together. So that makes it better. (laughs) Um, and things are, you know, we've, we've reached the system awkward though. It may be, we, we have, we have worked out the kinks because it's now been about two months. And so things are, things are moving along. Things are working as smoothly as they can given this new normal. Our civil team handles our juvenile dependency, child welfare cases, as well as mental health cases. So um, when we have mental mental health cases arise, which fortunately is is not too often, those prosecutors handle those. 
uh, whether it's asking for an evaluation or asking for a commitment or, or whatever might be appropriate. With our juvenile dependency cases, we are, of course, trying to work to ensure that we are compliant with Title IV-E because uh, the, the tribe does receive some funding through them. So we're, we're making sure that our timelines are, are appropriate, that we're having the hearings we need to have, having the findings that we need to have made, made, and then just ensuring that when children are removed, that the, that the parents get the, the hearings that they're entitled to in the time frame in which they're supposed to, to get it. So our, our day-to-day operations really haven't changed very much, except to say that we aren't having nearly the volume that we're accustomed to. And um, of course, the lack of volume is made up for in, in different kinds of extra work that we have to do because we're all remote. But um, essentially, our, our, our day-to-day operations have have not changed very much. Our victim advocate is still doing her best to make contact with victims telephonically whenever she can. She's setting up Skype and telephonic meetings with prosecutors and, and victims. Our criminal investigator is playing his part as well. He's helping us locate people that, you know, we've lost phone numbers or we've lost contact information. So it sounds very similar to, to what Chief Prosecutor Henry described. It's organized chaos, sometimes more chaos than organized, but we're doing our best and, and everyone's really playing their part. Everyone has really upped the teamwork and as strange as it may sound, I think that we will come out of this a stronger, more cohesive department because we are having to anticipate needs. People aren't around to be as explicit in their in their asks anymore. And so we are having to pop in to help people, pop in to pitch in whenever we can. And, and in a strange way, I think that it's been um, a weirdly positive experience for our office because everyone is sending daily photos of their dogs sitting on their desks by their laptops or their kids pitching in to help with that morning's report, right? So it's, um, and everyone's teaching their children, homeschooling them while they're, while they're reviewing their, their work from home. So it's been a, a bonding experience for us. We know more about our, our offices, spouses and children and pets than we ever have before. And so that's certainly something positive that's come out of this very scary ordeal. And Chief Prosecutor Breland, you, you bring up a really good point that there is an odd unity in all this. It's an uncomfortable and painful and awkward time, but everyone's going through it at the same time. And I don't think that we've had anything quite like this in our world. So you do bring up a good point that there is a certain unity. I think down the road, we'll, we'll all look back and think, wow. We've all experienced it together. We're going to end on this last question. Um, Judge Urbina, how have prosecutors specifically worked with you to flatten the curve? And on the other side of things, uh, the chief prosecutors, how have judges worked with you each to flatten the curve? I guess I guess in our court, there's, there's a strangely a more collegial um, atmosphere. It's a Western model system. So... By nature, it's litigious generally. Um, however, um, it seems like all parties, uh, prosecutors, public defenders are um, working together. Um, there's a lot of emails, text messages to parties, to the clerk, to the court clerks, um, making sure we're we're on the same page in terms of our hearings. Um, the prosecutors, I think. Um, they're they're staying consistent with the administrative order and scheduling things out that can be scheduled out 
So um, I think the courts have a responsibility. The justice system has a responsibility, um, not only to think about you know, the safety of the community now, we've added this health factor that we all have to consider, not only for ourselves, our court staff, um, our, our internal staff from our departments, um, but also the public, um, everybody we deal with, everybody that comes into the court system has family members. So if we're, we're, we're helping to spread um, this virus, then we're doing a disservice to the community um, because we're helping to spread that. So, so we've all developed internal protocols. Everybody's wearing PPE. Um, we're doing social distancing within the courtroom. Everybody's getting their temperature checked or screened as they come in. We're still holding hearings um, in court. Uh, the majority of hearings are happening in court with um, a lot of people, you know, coming in telephonically if they, if they have to. The court is allowing for that to happen. We're even waiving the presence of defendants in some cases um, to, to, you know, it's just a, it's just a really nice um, uh, collegial atmosphere between, you know, the detention staff, our, our bailiffs, um, and even the people that come through the courtroom. There's a general understanding that, that you know, there's an increase in stress within the community there are uh, issues that are arising because of this, whether it's domestic violence or, or drug-related cases that um, we're, we're um, seeing. We're also putting things on the record um, in terms of when we're sentencing people. We're making sure that um, you know I take judicial notice that, hey, this person might have 10 terms in their plea agreement that they have to do by X date but what we're telling them is that, okay, we understand that it's going to be hard for you to schedule uh, this treatment or hard for you to go to these AA meetings or victim impact panels. Um, we're going we're gonna to take notice of that um, so that when we come back here, if we have to, um, we understand that we'll, we'll, we're going to investigate and look at these matters because it's going to be harder for you to... Um, fulfill all those terms in your plea agreement. Um, so those are things that'll come up in the future, but it's also, it's already been kind of set within the court orders that we deliver. We're putting in our court orders that people are being, um, they're, they're abiding by court uh, mandates in terms of PPE and social distancing. Um, that's going in the court orders, as well as these um, notations about um, the terms might be more difficult and there, there might be things that they rely on uh, in alternative ways. You know, they're going to do X by, by the public defender hooking them up with an agency that can do this um, rather than our agency that we generally use. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people just working together to, to, to make it through this, uh, understanding that that we're all, it's all new and and we're we're just uh, it's it's really nice to see actually. So it's been a really mixed bag um, with us because there are sort of I keep saying there are enough of us, but there are you know several judges and and several of us, and we each prosecutor. And judge really have a, a different, unique relationship with each other. 
Um, so I know that in some districts, things have been tense. Um, the way that, that I think the curve is, work, is being, work, being flattened, hopefully, um, is simply that everybody closed the door. You know, and the courts are closed and there's no one allowed in the court building, no one allowed in our offices. And I don't know that there's much communication in every district, to be totally honest. And that makes me a little sad. I feel really lucky, in part just because I've been here a long time and I've worked with these judges before because I used to be a staff attorney. My judge here in my district has been incredible. Uh, we we really have always stressed teamwork and he has been so flexible and so willing to listen to ideas. So, and, and my judge is not alone. Um, several of the judges have just bent over backwards to accommodate as many hearings as can be accommodated while promoting fairness for everyone. Um, we're, we're doing phone court only, but some of the districts are now starting to experiment with various video capabilities because we know, I think we know this is not going anywhere. It's not going to be in the same room anytime soon. And it's not just the judges, it's the court staff. So each court has a has a big staff. And in Rama here where I'm at, we were kicking around last week by email, just sort of ideas like, hey, I think we should be brave. We should move beyond the kinds of cases that that are deemed essential. And let's start to explore how do we do other cases? How do we do other hearings? How do we get defendants in the courtroom if they don't have a phone? How do we set up a phone in the lobby so that people can come in? And, and I felt comfortable enough with my judge to, and the court staff, everyone was involved in the email to say, here's a crazy idea. What if we convert one of the restrooms in the court lobby to like a, a hearing room with, a, with an enclosed computer and video webcam? Because it would afford privacy for some of the cases that are like our family court cases, but still allow people to be in the lobby and be socially distancing. We don't want to open the courtroom. Um, and you know, to his credit, the judge didn't roll his eyes. Well, he may have rolled his eyes, but he didn't tell me like, you're crazy. And I think he would have. And so I think that's how our, our judges to varying degrees are. Um, we're all learning to be flexible. Like Chief Prosecutor Breland said, is this is creating collaboration, not just within our offices, but between our offices. And I sure hope it, it continues because I, this is such progress in hard times. So I hope that when we all are able to go back to normal, if you will, that we don't, you know, I hope we continue to talk and, and not see each other as opposing or disparate parties anymore. Should I chime in? Yes, please do. <laughs> As probably happened with, with everyone, in a matter of days, we had to figure out kind of what are we doing? Are we all going home? Are we going to have any hearings? Um, and, and from that first week, the court has been communicative with all of the different departments who, who practice there, not only us and the Defense Advocates Office, but also our Legal Services Office, which handles... A, a big variety of cases, plus our guardian ad litem program, our office of general counsel, they've, they've been inclusive of all the departments and helping to figure out what this new normal is going to look like. We, before this happened, did not have electronic filing. And once it became clear that the best way to keep from spreading COVID-19 was to keep everyone separated, within a matter of about two days, suddenly we had 
an electronic filing system. Um, the court worked with our IT department and pushed that out. And so now not only are are all the attorneys safe, but also our administrative professionals don't have to go into, into the courthouse to get our documents filed. So that's that's just one example. I think that flexibility, innovation, <laughs> um, creativity are are more valuable now than ever. And I think that we're very lucky to have this big group of people to try to figure out, you know, now that now that things are working like they are, what is the next step going to look like when when people start coming back to court, when hearings start becoming more frequent again? What what are some ways that we can ensure that we're being safe and smart? Just today, we had a meeting with the court administrator and the heads of all the the legal departments, and you know we're all working together to try to try to figure out what what we should do. We keep saying it, all of us keep saying it, but I think the biggest focus of this entire time has been teamwork and who has the best idea. And it doesn't really matter who that person is, whoever it is, get them in the room. There's no egos. There's no, um, no one knows what we're doing. No one is an expert right now. And so the, the biggest, the biggest focus for all of us has just been figuring out what the best ideas are and, and how we can accomplish them. And the court has has been a part of that process. The judges have also been really wonderful about for, for motions that are filed either by prosecutors or defense attorneys, they're making quick decisions on those motions, motions that might have required an oral argument before the judges are, are ruling based on the filings. They're doing it quickly. They're doing it efficiently. So in cases where we have asked for a substantive ruling or we have asked for on occasion an in-person hearing, the, the judges are, are handling those quickly. They're handling them in a, in a way that makes sense and in a way that is responsible, but, but they're, not, they're not just leaving things pending. They're, they're doing a good job. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for that. And then the court on its own as a department has also been good about including everyone in the process, not making unilateral decisions that affect all of us without our input. So for that, we're very grateful. And we're making adjustments along the way like everyone else is, but we're, we're just grateful that they are taking input from whoever has to offer it basically <laughs> so that we can, we can all work together. Thank you so much, each one of you. Seriously, we couldn't have asked for anything more or anything better. I mean, we, we're just so happy that you were able to make time. Again, thank you. This was an hour and a half. I mean, I can't believe you've gifted us an hour and a half yeah. of your time, each each of you. Uh, so thank you so much. It means a lot that you made this time to talk about something so important. And honestly, the public needs to know this. Uh, there's, there's so much misinformation going around. People don't even understand what's going on. So aside from educating ourselves more about these issues, I'm, I'm most excited about opening this up to our audience and having them learn a lot from this. So I just yes, want to thank you very much for reaching out to us. You know, Fred is one of my mentors. He's been, um, I've been acquainted with Fred since I was a baby prosecutor and he was chief prosecutor at Pasquayaki. I still go to him with questions at times. And so now seeing him as a judge and being included on this panel with him is um, kind of unreal, I'll be honest with you. So it's really wonderful, Fred, to see your face again. And I'm excited to quote unquote meet Chief Prosecutor Henry. Um, I haven't met her before. And so I'm very glad to have gotten to um, gotten to meet her. And, and now I have a new acquaintance and hopefully we can keep in touch and brainstorm ourselves about 
ways that we can work together. But I think that this is such a, a meaningful podcast and I just feel, feel very thrilled to be included, but also just want to thank all of you for putting it together because I think that whatever we can all do as prosecutors to, I don't know, to, to, to benefit the communities we work for um, and to share ideas with each other, be, be resources for each other, what, whatever we can all do during this time. I mean, we're talking about teamwork within our offices and within the communities that we work for, but I think we can also expand that, right, to, to, to be teamwork between our, our tribes, the tribes that we all work for. So um, if there's anything I can ever do for, for either of you, Fred, Fred knows how to find me, but um, Jennifer, if, if you ever, if there's ever any way at all that I can help or, or do anything for you guys, just, just let me know. I'm just happy to. So thank you for including Elaine, I'm coming after you with email because every as you were talking, I was like, oh, I'm emailing her. As soon as I'm getting off of this day, I'm emailing you. <laughs> email, please. I would love to get to know you better. We haven't. I, I know some of the the chief prosecutors that are that are near us, but we we've never really had a relationship with Navajo just because you guys are so far away. So I actually would like to build that relationship, and so it's very nice to get to meet you. So be, that be I careful what you ask for, my friend. Be <laughs> careful. <laughs> Okay, when this is over, I'll be coming for a visit. You'll be having to give me a tour. So, deal, uh, <laughs> deal. Oh my god, that made my go down and tour. Go down and tour Fred's Fred's space too. It's really nice down there. They've they've done a great job at Pasqua. It's one of my favorite places to visit. They always feed us, and they're always very kind to us. So we're I think, we love to go I think down. It's two words: field trip. Field trip. Yes. We're going. There you go. So, this makes my day, honestly, that <laughs> we're, you know, revisiting friendships and, no, and you know, new friendships formed here. Uh, you know, that's what we're about. And the fact that you guys are having a great experience through this really makes it worthwhile for me. Dawn, please tell me you were recording all of this still. <laughs> I'm recording all of this still. I love it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Henry, please reach out. Um, I can send all the stuff that we're working on and we've developed. I've got a PowerPoint kind of goes over um, opening procedures for, for other courts, things that we've done here locally that I can share um, along with our public health ordinance and some of our, our underlying documents and motions and, and language that we've developed um, that we use currently in our orders. So, so if you need any of that, I mean, if it's helpful to even look at, Absolutely. Uh, I, can send that, I can send that along. Well, you guys are amazing. Made my day. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you, it seems you've, you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And I cannot stress how much, how, how just how much we're grateful for you being here. Bye, yep. guys. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank have you. Have a good, good night. evening. Night. Good night.